Professor, thanks so much for taking time to do this. I appreciate it. Uh, very much my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you wrote about an article some time ago, several days ago, I believe, about a Texas A&M professor was suspended for criticizing the governor. You know, this cancel culture on campus thing seems to have been gone on for some time at this point. Do you see it getting better? Well, it's a good question. Hard to tell. I should say that it's not super new for somebody to get in trouble at a state university because they're criticizing state elected officials. You know, politicians have, have been thin-skinned in many ways and have been uh, at times vindictive uh, uh, for a long time. And I'm not sure that here the Texas government official was vindictive, but also um, uh, state universities, their administrators have for a long time been worried about things that... Uh, uh, that might be said in class or out of it that might undermine funding or just cause trouble. Uh, so I just I want to stress this isn't completely new. There have been attempts to restrict speech, including speech in the classroom, for many decades. There does seem to have been more of this in the last few years than we saw, say, 20 years ago. Uh, some of it coming from the left and some of it coming from the right. Will it abate? Will it get worse? Hard to know for sure. It does seem like a generational thing. I don't remember much of this stuff going on when I was in college. I don't know if you remember it when you were in college. Is there a generational divide? It's a good question. Don't know for sure. Uh, there are some polls that suggest that there are different attitudes uh, uh, with regard to restricting speech, including at universities, depending on whom you ask, whether it's left or right. And also sometimes you see somewhat different attitudes by generation. Um, again, it's not like it's something super new, uh, but I do think that probably when I was going to college in the 80s and law school in the 90s, when I was teaching in the 2000s, the sense that is say the first decade of the millennium, that my sense was that by and large, uh, much of the university had absorbed what had been struggled for for quite a while, principles of academic freedom and principles that, you know, there's going to be disagreement and you argue about things rather than trying to get someone fired or shut down. for that. Um, so certainly there are cases from the U.S. Supreme Court with attempts to in the 60s and 70s shut down. They're mostly um, uh, uh, speakers and student groups from uh, on the left. Uh, but uh, uh, it's true for the 80s, 90s, zeros, it looked like we might have been in a somewhat better position. And today things, I'm seeing more of this, about how much of it is generational attitudes, how much of it is just we're seeing more coverage of these things, how much of it is that it's easier for people to gin up opposition to various speakers by using social media, for example, hard to tell. Do you think that folks like you and I, immigrants, uh, particularly from places that had different systems of government in place, are more sensitive to these kinds of issues and free speech in general? Well, again, I'm a little skeptical about it. Certainly, I know people who are immigrants who are generally pro-government, including to government power to restrict with speech that they see as leading to disorder or crime or just interfering with educational process and such. Conversely, there certainly have been plenty of people in American legal history who are American born, who were uh, pretty solid supporters of free speech. Uh, um, uh, 
the su Supreme Court justices who have generally uh, uh, created much of modern free speech law uh, almost exclusively are American born. Um, uh, so, so again, I'm hesitant to make generalizations uh, based on, or just, just in the absence of a real study. You show me a survey, I'd be very interested in looking at it, but I've certainly not seen any such survey. And the uh, experience I have is just highly impressionistic. What is the problem, generally speaking, with restricting the conveyance of false information online? Well, so it depends, right? So let me give an example of a false information that uh, the law does restrict. It's libel. If somebody accuses me of some specific uh, alleged crime or alleged misconduct, uh, online or offline, and it turns out it's a factual assertion, not just opinion, it's false, it damages my reputation, and the person, depending on the circumstances, may have known it was false or may have been negligent about this, well, we have a liability system uh, uh, for for dealing with with those kinds of defamatory statements. Um, the Supreme Court has made it harder, starting famously with the New York Times v. Sullivan, made it harder to uh, to um, uh, uh, win libel cases. But it's certainly possible uh, to do that. And of course, there's some very high profile ones. There's the the lawsuits against Fox for uh, for allegedly libeling. Uh, uh, various companies involved with election administration. There was the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard libel lawsuit. Uh, uh, so, so there are there are such lawsuits. Uh, uh, and for better or worse, rightly or wrongly, we do allow our legal system to make those kinds of decisions. On the other hand, generally speaking, throughout American history and reinforced by the Supreme Court also in that New York Times v. Sullivan decision. Uh, in a separate portion, not, not having the so-called actual malice that that case is famous for, Supreme Court has said, look, you can't just punish people for false statements about the government or false statements about history, or about religion, or about science and the like, uh, that uh, those kinds of disputes should be resolved through public debate and not through the threat of criminal punishment of civil liability. I think that's probably also on balance a good idea, just because pun trying to punish false statements really means punishing those statements that some government entity, or in some situations, some social media platform, decides are false. And they can make mistakes, just like the rest of us. And sometimes it's not just mistakes. They can deliberately claim something is false, even though it's true. Now, to be sure, in the libel context, where individuals' reputations are at stake, uh, Courts say, no, it's okay for the legal system to decide what's true or false, in part because, you know, there's not going to be a big academic debate about whether whether uh, Johnny Depp did indeed abuse Amber Heard, let's say. Uh, those kinds of specific statements about specific people, generally speaking, maybe for celebrities, there might be a debate in, in, uh, in newspapers. But for most of us, you know, the only way of getting to the bottom of those assertions is through the civil justice process. But when we're talking about big picture questions, uh, did COVID originate in a Chinese lab? Um, is the hunt, was the laptop that attributed, was attributed to Hunter Biden, was it actually Hunter Biden's? Uh, what are the right ways of dealing with COVID? For those kinds of questions, generally speaking, I think, and I think our legal system concludes, it's better to have that be resolved through public debate than through a judge or a jury or an executive branch official deciding here's what's true and here's what's false.
Is the actual malice requirement too high of a standard to meet? Well, so it depends. So first of all, let's let's um, focus on when it needs to be met. So when it comes to falsehoods about the government or falsehoods about history or science or whatever else, actual malice standard, which basically means knowing or reckless falsehood, actual malice is a bit of a legalese here, uh, um, uh, that standard is irrelevant to these statements about the government or about history or about science. Generally speaking, I oversimplify here, but generally speaking, that speech is categorically protected. The government can't prosecute me for saying, well, the Volok is lying about us, about the government. Even if they could show I'm lying about it, uh, about them, that's not something that, that can be can lead to a criminal libel case or a civil libel lawsuit. Um, on the other hand, for quite a few libel claims, you don't need to show actual malice. So, for example, if it's a statement on a matter of private concern, some allegation of some sexual impropriety, a non-criminal sexual impropriety on somebody's part, or if it's a statement about a private figure, even on a matter of public concern, uh, where the private figure can show, look, I lost a job because of this, or I lost uh, employment opportunities or some such. There, you don't have to show uh, knowing a reckless falsehood, just enough to show, uh, show negligent falsehood. Where does actual malice come into play? When public officials uh, or other public figures sue for libel, they have to show knowing or reckless falsehood before recovering. And even when private figures sue for libel on matters of public concern, uh, they have to show knowing or reckless falsehood unless they can show actual proven damage to themselves. So if they say, you know, I can't show actual proven damage, but I think the jury should presume damage when something like this was said about me, or I should get punitive damages. For that, you also need actual malice. Is this actual malice standard, knowing a reckless falsehood, is it too high, too demanding? It's an interesting question. There have been great arguments made by learned judges and professors on both sides. So Justice White, for example, for a long time was uh, the one justice on the U.S. Supreme Court who most criticized that standard and said we should go back to maybe a negligence standard or something like that, maybe even strict liability. These days in the court, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch seem to take this view. They're conservative. By the way, White was a centrist justice. Justice Kagan, back when she was Professor Kagan, wrote an article where she also expressed some skepticism about the actual malice standard. On the other hand, Quite a few justices, both liberal and conservative, and quite a few scholars say, you know, it has its flaws. It allows a lot of damaged reputation to go unremedied, but it's better than the alternative. The alternative would be too much deterrence, too much of a chilling effect on discussion of public officials and public figures. And maybe, by the way, the rule ought to be some, somewhere in between. So maybe we might say if it's a public official, governor, mayor, school board member, whatever else suing, well, then they should show knowing a reckless falsehood. But if it's merely a so-called public figure, maybe some movie star or somebody else, they may be really famous, but they should get the same libel protection as ordinary private figures. Another example of where the, public, uh, the actual malice standard is applied is for so-called limited purpose public figures. So if you are a private person, but you get involved in a public debate. Then you become a public figure for purposes of allegations related to that debate. Well, there's a good argument for 
having this standard because you might say it's important when somebody voluntarily gets involved in a public debate for people to be able to scrutinize this person's qualifications and supposed misdeeds. On the other hand, the standard is kind of like a tax for getting involved in public debate, right? If you don't get involved in public debates, then you've got pretty decent protection uh, for your uh, reputation. But when you do get involved in public debate, then in that case, you lose that protection. It's certainly possible. Some people might say, I'd better not speak out about this controversial issue because then I might draw all this criticism and have no mechanism uh, of, uh, uh, of dealing with that, even if the criticism ends up being libelous. So these are complicated questions, and maybe they need to be decided differently in different situations. You know, late last year, you wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal about a New York law that was to be passed here that would require internet companies to impose a policy in which they designate how they deal with hate speech. What's the problem with that? Uh, well, so just to make clear, the law, which is actually still, the case is still on appeal, the, the New York uh, uh, Attorney General's office is defending that law. The law did indeed only require social media platforms, which was defined broadly enough to include my blog, to announce their policies related to so-called hate speech. And uh, uh, as I read the law, it also required uh, social media platforms to respond to complaints about hate speech. Didn't require them to take anything down as such, but required them to have such policies and I think to respond to complaints under those policies. The problem with that is this is a viewpoint-based law. Even though it's a relatively modest uh, constraint on social media platforms. It targets particular viewpoints, viewpoints that are seen as prejudiced, hateful, and the like. Uh, and the First Amendment does not allow the government to target, generally speaking, to target uh, uh, particular viewpoints, uh, um, even for very modest restriction. Now, there are some laws that are being challenged as well, which require social media platforms to generally announce what content moderation policies they have. It's an interesting question whether those laws are constitutional or not. It's complicated. Uh, but those, at least on their face, apply to social media platform policies generally, regardless of the viewpoint. But if the government says, you know, we want you to have policies about hate speech or policies about anti-war speech or about anti-government speech, uh, that's a viewpoint-based restriction that is generally unconstitutional. Why does it sound counterintuitive but right? to protect hate speech? Well, so uh, um, a lot depends on what, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry. Uh, let me step back. To begin with, it's often hard to tell what is and what is not hate speech. So for example, occasionally you see hate speech defined as incitement to violence, discrimination, or hostility based on race, religion, sex, sexual orientation, or et cetera. Well, all right, let's say somebody says, you know, I think that conservative Christianity is uh, theologically unsound, it's, it's bad for women and gays, uh, and uh, uh, it's, uh, it's foolish, it's, uh, it led to all of these bad things. You know, you could agree or disagree with that, but it seems to me pretty clear that uh, religions need to be subject to criticism. Certainly, many religious belief systems merit criticism, although we may disagree about which ones. Um, uh, and so, so I, I mentioned this, some people say, oh, no, no, that won't be covered. Well, why not? That is incitement to hostility based on religion. So 
often when people say, oh, they want to ban hate speech, you ask them, well, define it. And then they give a definition and you might ask, well, what about this example, that example? And often it turns out that they're not really going after all hate speech. They're only going after incitement of hostility to certain views or certain religions or certain uh, um, uh, even uh, uh, certain uh, uh, ethnic groups and such uh, and not others. Um, so one problem has to do with definitions. But the other problem, I think, the deeper problem is that... Uh, um, the only way that we can figure out what the right views are about a wide range of topics is by freely debating them. So I'll just give you an example uh, having to do with, uh, uh, with sex. Uh, there is, there is uh, uh, an institution in our society, tremendously important institution, which is occupied by basically 90% by males. Uh, that institution is the prisons. And you might ask, well, why is that so? Is it because of sexism? Because maybe prosecutors go after men more than about than than uh, 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 women who commit the same crimes? Is it because of cultural factors that maybe there's culture that leads men to commit crimes more often uh, than women? Or is it because of biology? Maybe men are more likely to be aggressive, more likely to be violent, more likely to do other things. Uh, than women? It's an interesting question. It's worth debating. You might equally ask the same question, why is it that political uh, bodies, uh, while there are a lot of women elected to various political offices, by and large, there's still majority male. Is it because of sexism, including on the part of women voters, because of women are basically half the, half the electorate pretty much everywhere in the US? Is it because of society? Or is it because of biology, right? Men and women are biologically different and may be the same things that make men more violent, because I do think there's a biological component to male violence, may also make men more ambitious in political contexts and such. Uh, so these questions about, about differences between the sexes, questions about what we should think of various sexual orientations or gender identities or, race, or, or, or uh, racial groups or ethnic groups or whatever else, these are important questions that we have to be able to decide. Now, you might conclude, well, we think that uh, the right approach is to treat people equally without regard to race or sex. We think that sexual orientation is morally irrelevant. We think that, let's say, people who were uh, born with male genitalia and male chromosomes, XY chromosomes, but who view themselves as, as female uh, should be treated as women and should be allowed to participate, say, on women's sports teams. This may be all perfectly fine, but we do know that 50, 100 years before, in some situations, five or 10 years before, the broad social consensus was the exact opposite. And how do we know that what is now the received wisdom is actually accurate. How do we know that our answers to the right questions, for example, about why men and women are differently represented in prisons or in political institutions or whatever else, how do we know they're accurate? Uh, given that society has made many mistakes about it in the past, how do we know it's not making mistakes about it now? Uh, um, so the only way of figuring that out, I think, is by people being free to debate, debate this. Scientists being free to debate this, politicians being free to do that, citizens being free to do that. And if you conclude, for example, well, no, you know, there really are no material differences between men and women in their competence for various jobs and such, which 
basically is mostly my view. I think there probably are some biological statistical differences, but they seem to be relatively minor, sitting aside things like propensity for violence. The only way you can be confident about that is if you know that people can debate that and challenge that. And if this received wisdom remains plausible, remains broadly accepted, despite the challenges, we can have confidence in it. But if we try to shut down the challengers, we try to say, oh, no, it's illegal for you, or you lose your job if you challenge this received wisdom, that's all the more reason to doubt the received wisdom, because then we, we're not sure that it's actually able to resist, uh, to resist challenges. Why did you feel the need to file an amicus brief in connection with Connecticut's racial ridicule law. Tell me about that. Sure. So the Connecticut statute um, uh, provides, let me pull it up on my screen so I can read it to you uh, exactly. Um, it provides uh, uh, any person who by his advertisement ridicules or holds up to contempt any person or class of persons on account of the creed, religion, color, denomination, nationality, or race of such person or class of persons is committing a crime. Uh, so if you read it, you say, well, it has to do with advertising, right? That's kind of strange. Uh, why would you have this, this law be enacted? It turns out it was enacted about 100 years ago uh, when there was a move to try to ban discriminatory advertising saying essentially, blacks not welcome here, Jews not welcome here, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, uh, sometimes they involved ridicule or holding up to contempt as a means of deterring people from patronizing various establishments. I think some legislatures even said, look, there's not much we can do to ban discrimination because that's often inside the the owner's head, and it's too hard to figure out what, what the real reason was they denied service to someone. But at least we can ban these kinds of humiliating, offensive advertisements. So it really was enacted to ban advertisements. Limited scope, but that's what it did. Um, but one of the things that I uh, observed in doing, doing some research, uh, I'd say 10, 15 years ago, is that uh, um, uh, police officers and prosecutors were using it routinely as basically a general anti-racial slur law or anti-ethnic or religious uh, uh, religious slur law. Uh, so one problem is that uh, they were using it sometimes even to punish slurs that were protected by the First Amendment. Uh, not all slurs are constitutionally unprotected. Face-to-face -face personal insults, whether they're racial slurs or not, might be punishable as fighting words, but sometimes uh, 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 people's use of slurs is not unprotected. So sometimes it was used to punish constitutionally protected speech. Even independently, targeting only racist or bigoted slurs and not other, and not other fighting words, the Supreme Court in a case in 1992 said is unconstitutional. But most importantly, even setting aside free speech, this is just a basic matter of due process. Somebody shouldn't be thrown in jail under a law that bans advertisements when what they said had nothing to do with advertising, right? So uh, police officers and prosecutors were, were applying the law to something that the law, uh, by its own terms, by its own wording, would not cover. That's just a basic principle of rule of law. If you're going to throw someone in, in jail for 
for uh, 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 advertising. He had be better have been advertising. And if what he was doing has nothing to do with advertising, that's not a statute that can be applied to him. So uh, uh, I uh, co-filed an amicus brief, a uh, friend of the court brief uh, in that case, basically just laying out how broadly the law had been interpreted. And I was pleased to see that the Connecticut Supreme Court ultimately said, well, this law cannot be interpreted that broadly. Uh, ultimately, it actually procedurally ended up throwing out the challenge, but simply because it said the challenger to the law isn't going to get prosecuted because he's not involved in advertising. So in the process of throwing out the challenge, uh, the court reaffirmed that this is a narrowly written statute that's focused on advertising and should be applied this way by government officials. I want to talk to you a bit about the legal profession. And you've written about chat GPT and you've written about AI. Are these things threats to the legal profession? Are these things threats to lawyers or the practice of law? Well, um, it all depends on what you mean by threat, and it all depends on what future versions are going to be like. Um, I do think that even the current versions might be useful to lawyers who are trying to do kind of a first cut at something, right off a first draft of some inquiry, or my understanding is it's especially useful uh, the AI program is especially useful for analyzing documents. Like here's a, here are thousands of documents. We need to sort them in response to some discovery requests. Let's use an AI program to do that. That doesn't mean that that use of it still requires lawyers. It just may require fewer lawyers. So it may be that rather than having a partner and a senior associate and three junior associates and the junior associates write up drafts or do document uh, uh, document review submitted to the uh, to the senior associate who then reviews that submits it to the partner um, instead maybe you'll have the partner and the senior associate the senior associate runs chat GPT creates a draft and then edits it in light of that senior associates legal skills or runs some software to go through a bunch of documents and then reviews uh, that output um, uh, so the result may just be fewer lawyers needed on each case. Maybe good for clients because they don't have to pay quite as much money, uh, um, uh, but maybe not so good for new, newly minted lawyers uh, because there'll be fewer jobs for them. Uh, so, uh, and as the technology improves, if it does indeed end up markedly improving, so far it has been. Chat GPT four is much better than three point five. You know, you'd think maybe five would be better than four. Humans 4 are not better than humans 3.5, right? We're still at the same level, whereas uh, uh, technology is getting better and better. So it may be at some point you will have a situation where for a lot of things, a lawyer can run a rough draft or, or excuse me, run the software to do a rough draft and then just review it a little bit, but build not a lot of hours because most of the work had been done by by the technology. Uh, so then it'd be few, even fewer jobs for lawyers. Imagine the following. Imagine, say, in a few years, somebody comes up with a program, which is called AI Arbitrator. And it says, look, people, mostly business people, you've got disputes. There are two ways you can go. You can submit it to the civil justice system. You're going to get a human judge and a human jury. They're going to resolve the dispute in three years. It's going to cost you $300,000. 
or you can submit it to my AI arbitrator. Basically, submit all of your legal filings, submit all of the excerpts of, or not excerpts, all of the deposition transcripts, all of the documents, and you'll get a result in 30 minutes for $3,000. Which would you prefer? Now, I suppose some people may say, well, I want human justice by humans. Okay, are you willing to pay $300,000 for it? Really? Uh, all right, maybe, maybe. But some of you might say, no, I want, I want accurate results. Not perfect results, because no business people think that judges and jurors are perfect, but pretty accurate. I don't want just a toss, toss of a coin. Okay, so imagine that this author, this AI arbitrator program says, well, we actually did a blind test where we had five human arbitrators and our program submit submit an arbit uh, kind of arbitral judgment in a particular case. We had 10 kind of blue ribbon evaluators, retired judges, uh, uh, prominent lawyers, maybe some politicians who didn't know which of the arbitrators was human and which was AI, evaluate the results. And of those 10, eight said, we prefer contestant number seven, or excuse me, I said one and five. So contestant, contestant number three. And turns out contestant number three was our, our AI arbitrator and it's re repeatable. Just in test after test, blind test after blind test, it yields results that are at least as good as human arbitrators probably many, many um, uh, or, or even as good as human judges and juries. Probably many uh, um, uh, business people will say, okay, fine, this is, this is worth it for us. And we can provide in our contracts, there's going to be a binding arbitration by this AI arbitrator. Or even if we have a dispute without such a binding arbitration provision, we just want to resolve quickly and inexpensively. So we're going to agree at the point of the dispute to this binding arbitration. Well, at that point, you know, maybe you won't have human arbitrators anymore because AI arbitrator by hypothesis is better. Maybe you won't even have a lot of lawyers required because maybe the program says we don't, you don't need to give us a legal brief. You just give us the documents and we'll resolve that. Uh, so, so if that's so, then a lot fewer uh, uh, lawyers needed. And then what might happen is the taxpayers and litigants in civil and criminal court might say, well, wait a minute, you know, if it's good enough for the business people, why isn't it good enough for us? And for there, you probably would need constitutional changes to authorize trials, not by judge and jury, but by AI. But maybe, maybe, again, it's all hypothetical at this point, maybe we'll find that we have replaced the entire uh, uh, justice system, maybe the entire civil justice system or some facets of it. Uh, while we're getting there, though, I do think we're going to find that to the extent it's a useful tool for lawyers, it probably means that legal cases may won't have to be as heavily staffed as they are now, and therefore there probably will be fewer uh, uh, fewer jobs for lawyers, uh, uh, um, and that may be bad for the law graduates, maybe really good for the clients. So let's end on a cliffhanger. When will robots replace lawyers? Uh, I there, uh, I have absolutely no idea. There's a great line from Samuel Goldwyn, I never make predictions, especially about the future. And one way of asking this is uh, ask people, including, including people who are very tech savvy, um, two years ago, even one year ago, did you expect ChatGPT to make as big a splash? Did you expect that ChatGPT4, for all of the various problems that it has, and it has plenty, that you could ask it a question and could output a couple of pages of grammatically correct, 
plausible, sensible answers to a wide range of questions. I think a lot of people said, no, 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 that's many, many, many years in the future. Turns out it wasn't. And then there are times where people people sort of predict that something's going to happen, be happening very, very soon, and it takes longer uh, than, than it had first appeared. Very hard to tell for sure. I do think we see the trajectory, though. I mean, I do think that there's been proof of concept for ChatGPT uh, and for similar AI programs. It looks like they can do things that look pretty similar to what lawyers often do, whether it's drafting letters or analyzing questions or whatever else, and at least to be a first draft, something that lawyers could then turn and and correct and improve and polish up, I do think that that's the future. Professor, I thank you so much for your time. Incredible discussion, interesting discussion. Very much so my much. pleasure. Very much my pleasure.